This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Ocean, ocean, ocean. Unwitting humanity has been saved by the sea. About 90% of the extra heat from our greenhouse gases has been absorbed by the ocean, like a giant air conditioner. But the power could be cut off soon, as we hear from our second guest, Keith Moore. We are setting a hot stage for coming centuries. Our first guest, Dr. Kevin Trenberth, has worse news for right now. For a third year in a row, World Oceans set up a new heat record, reaching levels not seen for over a million years. Trenberth says the hot ocean is dialing up strange, extreme weather all over the world. Expect the unexpected. I'm Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Dr. Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished scholar at NCAR, the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. He also works with the University of Auckland. Kevin was a lead author of the 2001 and 2007 IPCC Scientific Assessment of Climate Change. From Auckland, New Zealand, Kevin Trenberth, a warm welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Well, thank you very much, Alex. You are co-author of another new paper with an amazing team of scientists. Could you please tell us the title of your new paper? Well, the latest paper is just another year of record heat for the oceans, and so this deals with the year 2022 being, again, uh, an all-time record for the amount of ocean heat. Would you talk to us, for example, how hotter oceans can add more energy to storms and then we get more extreme weather? Well, you know, climate change is happening, and the main cause is the increases in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and it produces global warming, global heating, so to speak. And most of that heat, over 90% of it, ends up in the ocean, but ends up is an important point because some of it goes in and out and comes back again, and uh, having warmer oceans has consequences for all of the weather events that are occurring above the oceans. In particular, over the oceans in general, there is more water vapor in the atmosphere than there ever was before. And so as storms begin to develop, they normally do that in much the same way they used to, but now they immediately encounter this extra water vapor in the atmosphere, and it gives them a boost. There's extra uh, latent heat, there's extra heat that went into evaporating the moisture in the first place, Uh, that fuels these storms and it often intensifies them and it certainly adds to the rainfall rates. And so uh, this has consequences on all kinds of scales, whether it's uh, a small-scale storm that may cause floods locally, and there's been a huge number of those in California recently, for instance, or, or whether it's basically hemispheric scale or continental scale, And this relates to things like the big cold outbreak that occurred in the United States in December last year. And also, right now, uh, in January, around the 22nd of January, some of the coldest temperatures ever on record occurred in eastern China. Uh, Well, actually, it was eastern Russia, but uh, eastern Asia. And, you know, the temperatures were below minus 50 degrees Celsius. It's absolutely incredible. And it was very cold over all of Siberia 
and it was cold over parts of the U.S., but it was extraordinarily warm over the Pacific and southern Alaska, and it was extraordinarily warm over the entire Atlantic, going all the way up to Spitsbergen, and so this includes Norway and Sweden, uh, extremely warm. And so the key thing to take away from this is though it's very cold in spots, it's also extraordinarily warm in other spots. And so this turns out to be a part of the consequence of having warmer oceans that it can help uh, intensify even these very large-scale waves in the atmosphere and have consequences both on the warm side and the cold side uh, in terms of snow and, uh, and rainfall. And it's intriguing to learn that the ocean is heating into deeper layers, and that means when something like a hurricane comes along, it might have spun down and pulled up some cold water, and that would slow down the hurricane. But now there's warm water even deeper, so it it keeps on going. Yes, and this is, of course, true not just for hurricanes, but uh, also all other storms. The sea surface temperatures are what the storms initially see, but uh, very quickly the mixing in the upper ocean occurs with the winds in the storm, and and so that's not what ultimately counts. It's really the top 100 meters of the ocean which is interacting with the atmosphere, and as you say, the the hurricanes are one of the phenomena that uh, actually go down uh, I would say 150 meters typically in terms of tapping the heat that's there. And so having a warmer ocean beneath the hurricane uh, indeed enables it to be refueled and intensified and drop very heavy rains. And this is indeed what's happening. All right. Well, let's try to tackle a long list of short questions with huge answers, and I'll advance a point from the new study and then wait for your comments. And here's number one. Ocean heating may be the best and real indicator of how badly the energy imbalance is getting on this planet. Yes. The steadiness of the increases in the ocean show that it's the best single indicator of global warming or or global climate change, if you like to think of that. And the second best is sea level rise, which is actually related in a way, but it also has an ingredient from the melting of ice. And both of these phenomena are affected by things like the El Nino phenomenon, La Nina. So in El Nino events, there's more rain over the oceans than over land. Uh, and as a result, that has consequences for how much water there is on land, and so this affects uh, sea level rise. But, uh, yes, ocean heat, the changes in ocean heat content are the best measure of the, the fact that we're heating up the planet relentlessly, and the oceans have now warmed to a point where they are indeed influencing all of the weather events that are going on above them. So what has the heat got to do with the salt content, the salinity, and and why does that matter for ocean circulation? So one of the things that we explored in this latest paper was indeed the changes in salinity in the ocean. This is an update of earlier work that we did. And there's quite strong patterns of salinity around the ocean. So this relates a lot to rainfall. Uh, The Pacific is quite a bit 
pressure than the Atlantic. And uh, there's more rain over the Pacific than there is over the Atlantic. The Atlantic is fed by things like the Amazon, where there's fresh water coming in from over land, but there's a lot more rainfall that occurs over the land that uh, doesn't get into the Atlantic in that case. And one of the things we found is that the regions where it's already fresh in the ocean are getting fresher, and the reason, regions where it's already saline in the ocean, very salty, are getting saltier. And it highlights the fact that the rainfall over the oceans is intensifying, but it means that the dry spots are actually getting drier and the wet spots are getting wetter. So it, it, it's raining harder over the oceans where it already used to rain, and uh, in the places where it's relatively dry, it's raining less. And, of course, this extends to the land, and we see this with things like the floods and the droughts over land, except over land it's a lot more complicated because of the topography and because places like deserts uh, don't ever get rain. So one has to take into account the availability of moisture from somewhere. And over the oceans, of course, there's no limit to the availability of moisture. So it's a very good indicator as to what is happening with regard to what we call the hydrological cycle or the, or the water cycle. So does continued warming tend to weaken the great conveyor belt of ocean circulation, including the current that warms eastern North America and northern Europe? Well, it may well do. One of the things that happens, and another aspect of the paper that we looked at, is indeed the vertical structure of the warming. And uh, since the warming is occurring from the surface, from the, from the atmosphere down, uh, and warm water on top of cold water is a stable configuration, it means that the stratification of the oceans is increasing. Uh, but nonetheless, we can, we can see, we can monitor how rapidly the heat is penetrating into the oceans and going down, down to two kilometers depth is where we can really track it well. And, you know, it takes a couple of decades for the heat to penetrate that far. And so this alters the structure of the upper ocean, and it has consequences for uh, mixing of all sorts of things in the ocean, including oxygen. And so this affects all organisms within the ocean. It has, a, has effects on kelp farms, if you like to think of that way, or kelp forests and uh, and all kinds of the whole of the life chain uh, in the oceans from the plankton to the fish to the marine mammals to birds and, and so on are being affected by these changes. Uh, and so it can potentially also then affect some of the big uh, ocean currents. Uh, you referred to the conveyor belt. And so this is, you know, the very large-scale changes that are especially important in the Atlantic, for instance. It includes the Gulf Stream. Yes, our next guest is Dr. Keith Moore from the University of California at Irvine, and he just published a study in Nature with other authors, and they're finding that a reduced circulation could mean the stratification could lead to a kind of slow starvation in the seas right at the base of the food chain. Your thoughts? Yes, well, I think that's consistent with what I was just saying, that indeed 
the uh, oceans are likely to become more stratified. The the thing which uh, compensates for that is whether we have you know storms over the ocean, which cause strong winds, and then the winds can mix up the ocean, and so that helps enormously. But uh, in the absence of strong winds, the stratification becomes greater, and it does have an adverse effect on all of the all, all, all of the organisms. Why does heating of the seas reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that they can hold? Ah, well, the, the oceans become more stable, which means not only uh, oxygen, but also carbon dioxide penetration into the ocean tends to be reduced. But in addition, the ocean, as it gets warmer, can hold less carbon dioxide. This is the sort of thing that happens when you have a a pot of water on the stove and you're heated up, bubbles come out. And so as the water gets hotter, uh, all, of this, all of these bubbles come out. And you might think, where do these bubbles come from? Well, you know, it turns out the water can hold quite a bit of the atmosphere. Uh, and, it, and it's similarly true with carbon dioxide. And, and so warmer water, in some sense, boils off uh, carbon dioxide uh, and as a result, more carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere and it intensifies the climate change, which is already going on. So uh, at the moment, about, what, a quarter to 30% of the carbon dioxide goes into the oceans, and that uh, is likely to be cut in the future. A review done by Maurice Huguenin, published in Nature September 2022, looked at the distribution of ocean heat uptake and he found the Southern Ocean was taking up most of the added heat. Your comments, Kevin? Yes, well, we certainly find the Southern Ocean is one place where uh, there's a lot of heat being taken up. And, of course, that's partly because the Southern Ocean is so extensive. It goes all the way around the globe, uh, at least at 60 degrees south it does, and it extends over a huge portion of the planet. But the Atlantic is also warming up uh, at just as fast uh, overall, and more so than the Indian and the and the Pacific Oceans. So uh, yes, I wouldn't wouldn't discount the Atlantic either. Yes, the main fishers could tell you the waters off New England are getting too warm for some of the commercial species, and uh, so it, it can be a regional thing. Due to time limits, I think we're going to leave out increasing marine sea heat waves, the ocean heat waves, uh, even though they are so harmful to life. But you and I talked about those in previous interviews, so I'm just going to post links to that in my blog. My next question really is, what about hotter seas expanding, adding to sea level rise? Is that happening, and should we expect more of that? So as heat goes into the ocean, indeed, it, it expands. And this contributes probably to about 40% of sea level rise overall. The rest of it comes from the melting of land, ice. Uh, So this is Greenland, Antarctica, and all of the glaciers all around the world uh, that produce more water and fill up the ocean a little bit more. And so, yes, sea level rise is uh, one of the key consequences of global heating and the ocean increases in temperature uh, contribute to that. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. 
You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. Kevin Trenberth. And we're talking about record hot oceans and what that means. You mentioned earlier a loss of oxygen as the seas heat up. But should we worry about that? Yes, yeah, so the loss of oxygen uh, is certainly one of the consequences of the increased stratification of the ocean. And that affects all of the marine life from the, the smallest organisms, uh, and including the, the phytoplankton, the zooplankton, the, the fish, the uh, birds, the marine mammals, and, and so on. So it, it has consequences for uh, human society as well. And it sounds like we're making a big commitment for the long-term future. I mean, if we stumble along for another few decades using fossil fuels, raising the greenhouse gas levels, what is the long-term future for ocean heating? Ocean heating is likely to continue even after or if we are able to stabilize the atmospheric concentrations of the greenhouse gases. So this means getting to so-called net zero if we can cut emissions to zero of, of carbon into the atmosphere from carbon dioxide and, and natural gas methane, uh, then uh, the oceans still slowly warm up because the heat penetrates very slowly into the oceans and sea level rise continues for decades or maybe even centuries after the stabilization of the climate system. So because stabilization of the climate system is far from guaranteed anyway, uh, rising sea level is indeed a big concern. So for this new study, two teams, Chinese and American mainly, compared results from a wide range of instrumental measurements. Were there differences in the conclusions, and does this approach make the science more reliable? Yes, so this is one of the good things about the study, is that there were 16 different institutes worldwide that were actually involved in, in helping to write it. But there were two key institutions that were re- separately processing all of the data, all of the uh, information about the changes in the temperatures in the ocean. And their approaches are somewhat different. Uh, I think the U.S. group from the National Center for Environmental Institutes is not quite as good as, as the Chinese group in this particular case. Uh, if you look at their products, you will see that they've got a lot more spotty changes, and it relates to how they treat the areas where there is no data. But having different approaches gives us a good idea as to what the different assumptions that go into the processing do to the outcome. And it turns out that the changes uh, in the warming from last year are quite similar uh, between the two groups. America's taking very little effective climate action. In fact, American corporations are investing and expanding fossil fuel production as we speak. Have you any indications how seriously the government of China is taking the threat of ocean heating? What do their scientists say? So I've seen changes in how the Chinese government has approached this. There was a there was a time, let's see, about in the 2000s where they were in complete denial of climate change and uh, were very difficult to deal with in international negotiations of wording, for instance, in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that I was involved in. And 
Then there was a change, and I think the Chinese scientists finally got to the Chinese government to say that, look, China is, is a part of the world, and we're suffering from increasing droughts and floods. And indeed, there's been a number of examples of that, and they also uh, suffer from uh, typhoons, uh, hurricanes that uh, go into China. And so there's been a realization that, indeed, uh, China is being affected by climate change, and so they've changed their uh, approach. Certainly, it's been much more easy, much easier to deal with on an international uh, negotiation of, say, wording for various kinds of documents and, and agreements uh, in dealing with China. But China still really only deal, in my view, China really only still deals with this from the point of view of how it benefits China not how it benefits the world. And, you know, although China's a big, you know, an important part of the world, I, I don't think they're doing it uh, to really help the overall climate change problem. Their only, anything they do is really to help China. I'm not sure that's different from any other country I know. <laughs> but anyway... Is is anybody even trying to slow ocean warming? I don't even hear discussion about it. Yeah, so this relates to overall climate change. And, of course, the Conference of Parties, the COP meetings that occur annually, are supposed to deal with this. But this deals with the entire United Nations, some you know nearly 200 countries. And it's very, very cumbersome, and they make very little progress, uh, certainly the last COP in Egypt was, was I thought, very unproductive. Uh, the previous one in England and Glasgow was, uh, sorry, Scotland, uh, was certainly um, a little more productive. But I think more likely uh, the places where advances can be made are in the G20 or, or the G7 uh, through negotiations with the countries that actually cause most of the problems. And uh, and that's where we should look to. But, you know, when there's a war going on between, you know, the Ukraine and, and Russia, this is very bad for the environment, very bad for climate. And I think most people's attentions are just elsewhere at the moment. It's very unfortunate. Well, certainly. And there's also the pandemic. And what we're seeing there is a, a huge ability of both the media and the leadership to deny that the problem is continuing, and that looks very bad for us really facing up to climate change. So there is a lot of pessimism that will tackle this greenhouse problem at all, and the fallback position has been in some quarters either geoengineering or adaptation. Do you think those can be done? Is that realistic as an out? Uh, I do not really think so. There's a lot of talk about uh, offsets growing trees, and uh, growing trees is very popular, and yet there's tremendous evidence now that this is largely uh, unsuccessful and, and that maybe 5 to 10% of the claimed offsets are actually occurring. And part of it's because, you know, trees only last a, a finite lifetime. Uh, they get diseased. There's been a lot of uh, forest fires that have burned down. Uh, there's a lot of deforestation that has occurred. Uh, overall, trees have, have not really uh, helped uh, uh, that much. Uh, and the idea of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere 
uh, I think is really quite absurd because it's so expensive and it actually takes a lot of energy. And even if you can use renewable energy to do that, the amount that you can actually take out of the atmosphere is trivial. It, it hardly makes, makes a blip and, and it's extremely expensive. So that's where a tremendous amount of money is, is going in uh, several countries and through a number of big uh, industrial concerns. But I, that's not the way we're going to solve this problem. That, that is not going to solve the problem at all. We need to cut emissions. We need to keep the uh, coal that already uh, is out there in the ground and, and not burn it in the first place. As we ramp up here, do you have any last words? Well, climate change is a very real problem, and the changes that are going on in the ocean are now at a point where they're interacting with the atmosphere and contributing to the extremes that we see, and especially the heavy rainfalls, the potential for flooding, and also where it's not raining, uh, you know, drought conditions. And these, these in turn uh, lead to uh, heat waves. And so I think the public is becoming more aware that all of these extremes do relate to climate change and they are having major consequences. So there is indeed pressure to take action and to, to make uh, appropriate cuts in emissions of greenhouse gases of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But progress is way too slow at the moment. From New Zealand, we've been speaking with the distinguished scholar, Dr. Kevin Trenberth. Kevin is co-author of a study reporting record heat in the ocean for a third year in the row. Find links to follow up in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Kevin, thank you so much for keeping our listeners so well informed. Well, thanks, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Now we look into the way atmosphere and oceans interact in the home of ocean life. Tiny sea life, the plankton, capture excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They release most of the oxygen we breathe. Plankton could face famine if major ocean currents change, especially in the southern ocean. Our whole game of existence is on the line in cold, deep waters where no humans go. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. I'm not easily scared by science. But the work of our guest Keith Moore and his colleagues paints a possibility of outright extinction-level catastrophe for ocean life and all life if we continue heating the planet. I don't know how we all missed this. Keith Moore is Associate Professor of Earth System Science at the University of California, Irvine. After his doctorate in oceanography, Moore specialized in a new field called ocean biogeochemistry. In 2018, Moore led a foundational study called Sustained Climate Warming Drives Declining Marine Biological Productivity. Now he is back as co-author of Reduced CO2 Uptake 
and growing nutrient sequestration from slowing overturning circulation. Does that sound complicated? Does it sound boring? How about a quadrupling of CO2 in the atmosphere by 2250, a possible shortage of oxygen to breathe, and a mass die-off of sea life, including food fisheries, all lasting a thousand years or more? Does that sound important? From University of California, Irvine, Keith Moore, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Keith, what is biogeochemistry? So biogeochemistry just refers to the the cycling of key elements like carbon um, and nitrogen and phosphorus through the Earth system, through the, the land, ocean, and atmosphere. And carbon is particularly important because carbon dioxide is such an important greenhouse gas. And so much of what I study is the controls on the exchange of uh, carbon dioxide between the atmosphere and the ocean because that can have a big impact on the atmospheric concentrations and so on the climate. Yes, we get whatever the sea serves up. Is that how it works? The ocean becomes dominant in the long run on the atmospheric CO2. And, the, you know, the CO2 we're putting into the atmosphere right now, every year, um, 25 to 30% of what we're emitting from our cars and our factories uh, is being taken up by the oceans. If the oceans weren't taking up that CO2, global warming would be proceeding at an even faster pace. Well, it's interesting. Did you just say 25%? Because we were told that about 90% of Earth's, I guess that's energy, is, uh, is taken up by the ocean, not just carbon dioxide, but the total energy. You're right, Ox. That's the heat. So the heat that's been added to the system, a lot of that has also been taken up by the oceans, or the atmosphere would be heating up much more quickly. So from your dissertation up to the present, you've studied life in the Southern Ocean. What are the boundaries of the Southern Ocean, and and why should we learn more about it? So the Southern Ocean is the ocean that extends all the way around Antarctica, and it's important for biogeochemistry because it's one of the main connections that you know, it links the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Indian Ocean. And it's also where a lot of the exchange between the surface and the deep ocean happens in that southern ocean around Antarctica. The late Melvin Stern said at Woods Hole, it's easy to see how convection gets water down into the interior of the ocean. The challenge is figuring out where and how that water gets back to the surface. Your thoughts? That's pretty accurate. We do know, you know, the deepest waters form in the polar regions where they become very dense and denser than the water below. So those dense waters then sink. And the the dense waters forming around Antarctica become so dense that they sink all the way to the bottom of the ocean to form what's called Antarctic bottom water that then slowly moves, you know, northward away from Antarctica along the bottom of the ocean. And much of that return, we now know that return flow to the surface also happens in the Southern Ocean, but not not right on the continent, but farther north at sort of mid-latitudes, around 60, 55 degrees south or so, where we have this strong upwelling where the circulation brings deep water from thousands of meters down all the way up to the surface. And then that once at the surface, those nutrients, some of them are used locally to support life in the, in the Southern Ocean, but a lot of those nutrients today are not used locally, but they, they slowly drift northwards and end up supporting the life at the lower latitudes throughout the, the global ocean. 
And many of our climate hawks know about the ocean system called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, and people in North America call it the Gulf Stream, and it warms eastern North America, the UK, and Europe. A number of recent studies show the flow of these waters is weakening, but please tell us about the southern counterpart to AMOC. Sure. And so in our study, we studied both AMOC and what's what's called SMOC, the Southern Meridiano Overturning Circulation. And so this is the one that begins near Antarctica with that dense water forming. It forms the Antarctic bottom water, which, which sinks down and then moves northward into the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean. So as whereas the AMOC circulation is only happening in the Atlantic Basin, this deeper circulation is happening in all three basins globally. And what we found in the study is that, that both AMOC and SMOC are slowing down with global warming when we look out ahead with our climate models. And it's fascinating to learn. I mean, you, you did a lot of work on plankton, and it's fascinating to learn that carbon-grabbing plankton can regulate their own depth, and they need to find a place with enough nutrients and enough light. What happens to that essential sweet spot as humans force more warming into the ocean? Right. Well, all, all life needs nutrients to survive, right? Key nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, iron can be a very important uh, growth-limiting nutrient in the oceans. And what happens with the deep circulation, so everywhere, everywhere in the ocean today, there's some dead and dying organisms that are sinking down from the surface waters where, where the photosynthesis occurs, where there's enough sunlight for photosynthesis, and most of the life in the oceans is near the surface because of that. But a fraction of that organic matter produced sinks as dead and dying organisms, and those slowly decomposes their sinking. And so as they decompose, they're releasing the carbon and the nitrogen and the phosphorus in the deeper ocean. So if that, you can imagine if that process just continued, eventually they would use up all of the nutrients in the surface ocean, and we'd be in real trouble. <laughs> but that doesn't happen today because the circulation, this deep overturning circulation, brings those nutrients that the biology has pumped down into the deeper ocean back to the surface, and that sort of keeps the whole uh, system going. In 2016, we had the Russian plankton expert Sergei Petrovsky on Radio EcoShock. His paper said the future of plankton under global warming is unknown, and that echoes a 2015 paper by Lofkotter and Gruber. Have scientists sorted that out now? Do you think plankton will thrive or decline as warming continues? Well, what our study shows is that as the circulation slows down, you're slowing down this return flow of the nutrients back to the surface. And so over time, over decades to the next couple of hundred years, as the circulation slows more and more, you know, you still have nutrients, you still have organisms sinking down, releasing the nutrients, but now the circulation isn't bringing them up. So they start to, the nutrients start to build up at depth, and you start to get less nutrients at the surface. And so that will lead to declining photosynthesis and, and uh, biological production. And eventually that will work, you know, that will work its way up the food chain to less fish for us to catch, for example. From your work, as the warming continues, ocean life around Antarctica will thrive, but the tropics and the North Atlantic suffer catastrophic loss of nutrients. Is that the picture? That is correct. And in the North Atlantic, it's partly tied to this AMOC overturning circulation and the fact that it's 
almost shutting down with, with strong global warming. Um, it, it reduces by about more than 80% for AMOC. That means that return flow of nutrients to the surface is also reduced. And also the deep mixing that drives a lot of the biology in the North Atlantic declines. So in our earlier study, we estimated that you know this, this great slowdown of AMOC could reduce the potential fish catch in the high-latitude North Atlantic uh, by 50% or more. So, you know, it doesn't go to zero. We're not losing all the fish, but we're losing a lot of the productivity. And that North Atlantic fisheries has been, you know, historically was very important for the development of of both uh, the U.S., Canada, and, and Europe. What is the role of wind in changing the ocean in a warming world? Well, the wind, um, one of the key things the wind does is it affects that, that upwelling of nutrients, that return flow to the surface in the Southern Ocean. And in the, in the earlier study you mentioned, we found that, that the winds actually got more favorable, so there was stronger upwelling, and the upwelling also moved closer to Antarctica, which meant there was more iron, a key nutrient, available, because iron is coming off of the continents, out of the rocks. And so when the upwelling moves closer to Antarctica, you have more iron, and then you get more biological, more phytoplankton growth and more photosynthesis then right close to Antarctica. And what happens is, you know, they're using those nutrients locally, so those nutrients, less of the nutrients flow north to then support the, the rest of the global ecosystem. I came across a 2017 paper in Science Advances. It was titled, Overlooked possibility of a collapsed Atlantic meridional overturning circulation in a warming climate. And the authors say that uh, the AMOC collapses 300 years after the atmospheric CO2 concentration is abruptly doubled from the 1990 level. It sounds like we could be committing to colder winters in New England and the UK even as the rest of the world warms. Is that even possible? It's possible, but more likely what would happen in the long run is those areas just won't warm as much as the rest of the world. They won't actually get cooler than they are now, but the, the cooling will be slowed there because you won't be bringing heat north in the ocean and then releasing it to the atmosphere, which has a, a big warming effect on um, Europe today. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org This is Ecoshock. Our guest is oceanographer Keith Moore. You co-authored several papers on the relationships between iron and plankton. We think adding iron to the sea can stimulate enough plankton. Maybe it would help capture carbon. Some call it geoengineering, others ocean farming. Should we be doing this? That's a tricky question. Uh, you can stimulate growth in a lot of areas, but as I mentioned, only a fraction of that, that new growth is going to sink into the deeper ocean, and, and really, and that is what removes the carbon from contact with the atmosphere. Most of that new growth will actually decompose in the surface waters or near the surface waters, so you won't really be storing that carbon long-term away from the atmosphere. It might get back to the atmosphere the next year or a few years later. It's only the stuff that makes it to the deep ocean that is really sequestered. And that is one of the options we're looking at as we sort of become more, more desperate about trying to reduce the growth rate of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and one way to do that is to encourage ocean uptake. 
And this is starting to become a big research area, and a lot of the funding agencies are, are starting to put money into this to explore some of these ideas that could help um, lead to the oceans taking up more CO2. And so that's the opposite of what our study found will occur naturally. As this deep overturning circulation slows down, what we found is the oceans take up less CO2. And so we looked across a whole suite of climate models, 36 models, and we looked at different warming scenarios from the most optimistic, we keep climate at 1.5 to 2 degrees in line with the, with the Paris Climate Treaty, all the way to the worst case scenario, where we just keep burning up our fossil fuels as we have been. And the, and the, the worst case scenario that's really alarming in this study is that that southern overturning circulation, the SMOC, uh, it appears to shut down completely in all the models by 2300. Um, in the models we looked at, the AMOC doesn't shut down completely, but it's reduced by more than 80%, so it's really uh, slowed down a lot. And somehow, in that loss of carbon capture by the ocean and, and ocean life, it looks like in your paper, Earth would go over 1,900 parts per million instead of the 417 parts per million of carbon dioxide we have now. How is that possible? So getting close to 2,000 ppm, which, which could happen, that's where we could end up if we burn up all the available fossil fuels, if we don't kick our fossil fuel habit. And the, the amount of global warming that comes with that is really incredible. So, you know, to date we've had a little over one degree of climate warming. If we permit the CO2 to go as high as, you know, 1900, 2000 ppm, then we could see 10 degrees of, of surface air temperature warming. So 10 times the, the warming we've seen to this point. And, you know, it already feels like the climate system is going a little nuts with increasing fires, increasing flooding. You know, it's hard for us to even imagine what the planet would be like if we had 10 times that amount of warming. It's interesting you should say that because James Hansen has a paper out for re review right now where he's talking about 10 degrees C of warming being possible. And it sounds outlandish, and yet that is what would happen if we burn it all. I'm hoping we don't burn it all. So, meanwhile, scientists expect ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica should take centuries to melt away. Could big changes in ocean life happen fairly quickly? Is there a tipping point where we lose the food fisheries in that carbon capture facility? Well, I think the tipping point would be if, if things get hard enough that we get a complete shutdown of that deeper cell. And, you know, maybe the good news from our study is that only happens on the high-end worst-case warming. If we act now, over the next decade, couple of decades, to reduce our CO2 emissions, then in those more moderate future climate scenarios, AMOC and SMOC slow down, but only, you know, 30% or so, they don't shut off, and which would be much more drastic and disastrous for marine ecosystems. Because when it, it's when it shuts off, that you really accelerate that nutrient trapping in the deep ocean. And that's also where the stuff that is sinking down and decomposing and consuming oxygen, there's a potential that it could consume all the oxygen in the deep ocean, which would then lead to a mass extinction event. And this has happened in the deep past before. Um, and it happens when the, essentially the deep circulation shuts off for some extended period of time, but hundreds of years, maybe maybe thousands of years. That's part of the, the problem is we don't really know, especially as we go out to the multi-century time scale, you know, we're still figuring out where the, the tipping points are and, and most of our climate simulations still end at 2100. So 
We're not really exploring this longer-term frame the way I would like it to see it explored in both the climate models, or Earth system models. Suppose by the 2100 humans managed to stop emitting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Will plankton productivity uh, and the which produces most of the oxygen we breathe, will it return back to what we have now? Um, it might. It would likely be done some, but not catastrophically so. There would still be a lot of oxygen and a lot of photosynthesis, and a lot of oxygen being released from the oceans to the atmosphere. So I'm less concerned about that danger. There, there will always be some life and photosynthesis happening in the ocean. It's just a, you know, comes down to the how much it declines from the present day, and then, as you're implying, in the long run, how well can it recover? And to some extent, we need to just explore those timescales, those longer timescales more with our Earth system models. It's hard to say what will happen in the long term. Same for this shutdown of the overturning circulation. You know, it's hard to see how that uh, turns back on eventually. It could take a long time, hundreds to even thousands of years. When you shut down the deep ocean, you're also reducing the uptake of CO2 from the atmosphere when you shut down this deep circulation. This is what we found in the new study. And so that will extend the hot climate conditions because in the long run, we're counting on the oceans to remove most of the CO2 we're adding to the atmosphere. And so to the extent that you weaken that, you prolong the the peak warmth hothouse conditions, uh, perhaps for hundreds, even to a couple thousand years depending on what happens with the deep circulation. Keith, your work sounds obscure, but really it's very intense. If we continue warming the world, would you say this catastrophe in the ocean is just a possibility or a probability? How certain is the science at this point? I think the science is very good that that global warming will slow down this overturning circulation. It's an open question exactly how much, but... You know, because you're warming the surface waters everywhere, you know, warm waters are less dense. So that makes it harder to form these deep waters in the polar regions. And seeing that the salinity is also going the wrong way as those big ice sheets start to really melt quickly, and that's, you know, something that's begun, they're going to be putting a lot of fresh water into the ocean. And salty ocean water is much denser than the fresh water coming in from the glaciers. So again, that'll make it harder to form the deep water I mean, the really dense water that can sink all the way to the bottom and form that Antarctic bottom water because the surface waters just get so, um, you know, warmer and fresher, and at some point they can't get dense enough to sink to the bottom, and that's what is shutting off the SMOC in the long term. Is this new knowledge of ocean currents and life being used by the IPCC? Yes, so the models that we looked at were sort of the latest round of the IPCC simulations. So these are the state-of-the-art Earth system models, and the results from our study and others analyzing uh, the output from all these climate models will then feed into the next IPCC assessment. You know, I find it a little frustrating that your work over the last few years explains the possibility of a mass extinction-level event uh, due to tiny ocean life, But both your papers are behind a publisher's paywall. It's a mixed-up world when life could be threatened by changes under the surface, but nobody can afford to let the public read about it. What can be done about that? Any ideas? Um, I don't know. It is a problem. You know, we had the option to make this an open-access paper, but we had to pay, I think it was 
$10,000. <laughs> I didn't have $10,000. And, you know, the, the agencies like the National Science Foundation, et cetera, that fund my research, they don't really want to pay that 10000 either, so I can't charge it to my grants. But I agree it is a problem, and I think, you know, all of this scientific information should be freely available. Well, especially when it has so much import. Maybe we'll do a, a GoFundMe page to, to get some key papers up uh, available to everyone. Well, meanwhile, what is next for you, Keith? What are you working on? Um, well, I want to, you know, continue to look at these longer multi-century timescales and, and try to improve the model's ability to accurately make projections on those timescales. And so a big part of that is the interactions between the ocean and the ice sheets. That's one area where the models need to be improved, and I'm hoping to, you know, help work on that. As the oceans warm, the glacier flow off of Antarctica and Greenland can speed up dramatically, as the, as the big ice, um, ice shelves break up, the ones that extend out over the ocean where the glaciers are, are flowing into the ocean. So there's a tight link there between the melting of the ice sheets and what's happening in the oceans. And in most of the climate models, this is captured still rather crudely. And we need higher resolution in those regions in particular that can better capture the, the ice sheet-ocean interactions because that will have a big impact on the future of the climate, the future of the ice sheets, and uh, the future of the planet, really. Would you like to add any last words for our listeners? Maybe just to say that this, you know, complete shutdown of the deep circulation is quite scary, but what we found is that only happens on the worst-case climate scenario going forwards. We still have time to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in the next couple of decades, and and avoid this shutdown of the deep ocean circulation. Uh, at least that's what the models are telling us right now. So it's not all bad news, and there is still time for humanity to avoid the worst impacts of global warming. But we have to act now. Time is getting short. And it's really going to come down to this generation. We're either going to save the planet <laughs> by reducing the emissions and bending that curve, or we're going to be remembered as the generation that blew our last chance to save the planet. And I hope that's not the route we choose. From the University of California, Irvine, we've been speaking with oceanographer Dr. Keith Moore. You can find links to all the science we talked about and more in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Keith, thank you for talking with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Most of humanity live in the Northern Hemisphere. If you follow climate at all, you hear about the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMOC, or at least its component, the Gulf Stream. Several scientists appeared on Radio EcoShock reporting both measurements and models suggest the Atlantic AMOC current is already slowing down. If that continues, winters in both eastern North America and especially the UK and Northern Europe would be colder, as their true latitude suggests they should be. That is a regional effect, but it does have far-reaching arms into the great ocean conveyor belt as well. In 2017, a paper was published in Science Advances called Overlooked Possibility of a Collapsed Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation 
in warming climate. The authors say, quote, By correcting the model biases, we show that the AMOC collapses 300 years after the atmospheric CO2 concentration is abruptly doubled from the 1990 level, end quote. According to a new paper we talked about last week with James Hansen, still under review, when we account for all warming gases, not just carbon dioxide, the atmosphere has already reached doubling, over pre-industrial at least. So we wonder, are we already committed to a possibly collapsing Gulf Stream, the whole AMOC ocean system, around the year 2300? Have we changed the long history, sending northern Europe back into a little ice age scenario in a couple of hundred years, even as the rest of the world warms? But as Kevin Trenberth told us, the Southern Ocean is much larger than the Atlantic. The Southern Ocean is uninterrupted in land in places, wrapping around the globe. If most extra heat from the greenhouse effect has been absorbed by the ocean, the huge part of that goes into the Southern Ocean. That happens partly because of a massive mixing machine around Antarctica. Heated surface waters are thrown down to the bottom. It will take hundreds, if not thousands of years, for that warmed water to return to the surface, where it can affect the atmosphere. That mixing has limited climate damage so far. It is dependent on two things. Whether winds get even stronger in the southern ocean, churning up the seas and capturing carbon and oxygen, or whether those winds get weaker as the world warms. Related to that, but also operated by the pump of salinity— that means salt-loaded dense water sinks below the fresh, it's the smock, the southern meridional overturning circulation. We have heard signs from several quarters suggesting the northern overturning is weakening. Now we have signs to show the southern overturning could not only weaken, but could stop operating. Investigations show that has happened before in past ages. We are still working to define what the trigger for the demise of smock is. Our guests suggest that trigger might live within the upper range of heating expected if humans continue to load up the atmosphere at our present rate. A 2010 study by John Marshall and Kevin Spears said, It is now thought that the southern ocean upwelling has an importance that rivals the Atlantic downwelling branch for our understanding of climate and climate variability because it controls the rate at which the ocean reservoirs of heat and carbon communicate with the surface, end quote, from John Marshall et al. As you heard, the possible impacts are staggering, almost beyond imagination if that southern current stops. Scientists agree the global ocean has been absorbing 90% of our added heat, as we said. If the southern overturning collapses, we may experience double the heating, ton for ton of carbon that we add to the sky. Regional climates and so weather would change all over the world. The hydrological cycle would change, creating winners and losers for droughts, rain and floods. There would be fewer nutrients flowing towards the feeding layers in the tropics and the northern hemisphere. Fisheries might collapse as plankton declines. In such a massive instability, widespread extinctions sound likely to me. A 2018 paper in Science, led by our guest Keith Moore, found, quote, Projected increases in greenhouse gas emissions could suppress marine biological productivity for a thousand years or more. This decrease 
will result from a global-scale redistribution of nutrients with a net transfer to the deep ocean. By 2300, this could drive declines in fishery yields by more than 20% globally and by nearly 60% in the North Atlantic, end quote from Keith Moore and his colleagues. One more thing. In his 2018 paper, Keith Moore found carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere would skyrocket if a famine of nutrients causes plankton die-off. Current CO2 levels are around 419 parts per million. You are living through the extreme climate that that causes. But the Moore Group study, based on business-as-usual high emissions, takes the atmosphere to around 1,960 parts per million in a couple of hundred years. That is more than quadruple. We recall a paper and EcoShock interview with Professor Tapio Schneider from the California Institute of Technology and NASA. They found low clouds around the tropics would not be able to form somewhere around 1,200 parts per million. This essential cooling cover could be lost well before we get to that 1,960 parts per million that Moore suggests. So modeling by Moore and colleagues could blast us way past the danger line. Earth could become over 10 degrees C hotter on average, as Hansen predicted. Human beings and most life as we know it would be gone, possibly even by 2250. That's almost too hard to believe, but scientists now worry that is at least possible. The great collapse in ocean circulation has not happened yet. It is not preordained. But those are the towering risks we take with our fun holiday flights, the whole consume-and-throw-away economy, while postponing any rush to renewables. We are playing Russian roulette with the ocean. Will we stop before the seas stop moving? Young people, look to the ocean. Your future is out there in the deep sea. Find out for yourself. Find links to all this science in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for braving the awful truth and still caring about this world.